Hey folks and welcome to another episode of the Leadership Tales podcast. It's an episode with a difference today. So I'm joined by Casey Carter. Casey Carter is a he's an executive coach. Um, he specializes in in meditation and bringing a spiritual side through meditation into his coaching and his work. He's also he's looking after his daughter's band who's 17 and uh, she has just signed her first record deal. So she's out there doing that and he's got a very very nice take from his book about permission to glow, um, where he talks about four permissions that when you layer them out as four permissions, they talk about this ability to move from a chance to, to meditate, fall out your thinking through to a chance to, to get in contact with what's going through your emotions, that chance to move through into the next phase about how do I take those emotions and start to do my own work around myself. And then this ultimate piece, which, you know, I'm hoping that I eventually in my life, I get to some point, which is the permission to glow in the light, which is about how do you to give back to society, to others, to collaborate in, a, in, a, in an amazing way that impacts it on society and and generally makes other people's lives better. So those are the four permissions. You'll get a chance to listen to him. He's also a Rush fan. If anybody knows me, they know that I love the, the Canadian band Rush and just happened to be where fellow Rush fans, so you'll hear a reference to, to that as we go through that. So, um, yeah, you'll enjoy Casey Carter. Looking forward to getting your feedback on this. So let, let's go into the uh, the background, because it's, you know, the, the, the Rush piece was where we connected first off. Obviously, the ether got us together, but the Rush. Yeah. Tell me tell me a bit about you and, and the background, why Rush is so important to, to you. Maybe we'll start off. Let's, we could have the whole podcast on Rush, but anyway, let's go. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks for asking. Uh, so first of all, what, what, what he's referring to is uh, we, our first meeting. I started talking about Rush and the philosophy of Neil Peart, their drummer and lyricist who passed away a couple of years ago, total hero of mine. And Colin like leaned in. I saw your inner child. You looked into the camera and you pulled, you unbuttoned your very proper British shirt and you had a Rush shirt on underneath it. And I couldn't believe it. I'm like, okay, this guy is seriously my new best friend across the sea. So that's, that's when we became pen pals. And, and Rush is just kind of like that. I grew up in suburbia in Ohio, the Midwest of the United States and a latchkey kid from the eighties. And kind of in the mid to tail end of the 80s, I discovered Rush through through MTV, and I kind of worked my way backwards to all their amazing 70s material, the p- real prog rock stuff, and then started working my way forward in real time with the band. But I, I think what it spoke to me, and, and, and I think from our last conversation, what spoke to you is just this pursuit of excellence and precision and higher thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, people can write it off as dorky mathematic rock or whatever, but those guys have a legendary friendship. They have a legendary creative partnership and they just created magic. And I just, it gave me something to aspire to as a kid. Yeah, there was almost, they were fighting against, you know, the, uh, all the, the authority of that, the music, you know, NME, all of these places were just Rolling Stone was like, they never accepted. And I, I almost felt like I was guided by that because it felt like for all the quirky in a bit that you never felt comfortable, you felt you were on a different path to a number of people. They were on that. But I, I agree, it's the, the friendship that they had. And actually, when you hear the stories of the band's kiss and other people who toured with them and, and how they reacted to them and the fact that, you know, the, 
when they were inducted eventually. It was just that moment everybody was geeking out and the precision of the music they're playing. There isn't one person in there that isn't lauded by somebody for what they do. And it's being one of the best, being one of the best in the world, you know, but I think you brought up something really important, which is we grew up with so much pressure to conform and they wrote that anthem subdivisions back in the early 80s about being the, the outcasts. So they became like the, the mouthpiece for whoever felt like an outcast. And and I was I was a musician kid, you know, always carrying a cello with me to school or an electric bass. And then there's a certain group of people that would make fun of you for that or whatever. But Rush was this kind of power. It became this power amp inside me that was like, you know, I'll show you. I'm going to do my thing. I'm going to be a creative person. I'm not going to work in a damn cubicle like you will someday. <laughs> there was something like subversive about it. And I think that all came from Neil Peart's lyrics. Yeah. I also felt that you could take Rush and you could put it into something because it felt exciting. Acceptable. You know, with Geddy Lee and his Jewish boy background and everything else he used to talk about, there was something about being close to the parents. And then there was the family stuff. And obviously, Neil Peart and the real tragedy in his family, there seemed to be something just grounded and connected, which is what we're going to talk about today. They, they never felt that they got above themselves and plated. And they, and they saw the fans as the true people who were talking to in the music. And and I think that grounded piece for me is, is you know, you could be 40 years, 40 plus years in an industry which is cutthroat, still be successful and still be grounded. I think it's superb. Yeah. Yeah. And I think at the end of the day, the game is longevity. You know, how do we prolong this and sustain it in a way that's meaningful? And I, I don't see how you can do that without being grounded. And, and again, Rush, I think, really proved that they retired in the most elegant fashion at the very top of their game, you know, playing like three and a half hour sets. I mean, it's amazing. It is. And it, it links to something on infinite purpose for me because they changed, they evolved, but there was something about the music. There was something about the three of them together and even their managers staying with them so long. There was something that they were on a journey to do something. And I always remember the conversations in the the movie when they were talking about when's the time to, to go. And they, you know, they, they sort of knew that it was time to go and they knew that that was time to end. So However, there's, the music still lives and is, it has an infinite purpose. So I'd love to get into moving away. We could talk. <laughs> we'll pick that one up. <laughs> we can pick that one up. But, but going into you and your, your journey, because there's something in your journey that is similar to mine. And that's if you talked to me about 10 years ago and said that I was going to be talking about meditation, I was going to be talking about mindfulness, falling out your own thinking. I was going to be experimenting with breath. I was going to be experimenting with neti pot which for all the geordies the all the geordies listening will go and that's not the neti i was thinking of no it's not yeah. so neti in, in newcastle is the toilet the outside toilet so but the neti pot but but there's an experimentation that i've gone through which you've if you want to use the word professionalized in a lot of ways to your work which i'd love other people to understand a bit of your journey and how you got there i, I take that as asking about how meditation kind of came and found me you know, in my own personal path. And I, I was living like most of us do in, in our 20s uh, in an unsustainable fashion, uh, sleeping on studio floors, drinking what I wanted, smoking what I wanted, uh, just kind of not having a real uh, manual on how to finish the things I had signed up for. I got married young. I was avoiding being married, avoiding, you know, driving in soul crushing traffic in Los Angeles to get to a job that I didn't really want anyway and becoming alienated from the band I was playing in. So like all these dreams were kind of kept far out of reach by my, like how I was living basically. 
And I started surrendering into the path of first personal development because it was just like, oh, I just want, I just need to achieve more. You know, I just need to just do, do, do and achiever, achiever. And I grew up on all that 1980s personal development stuff. I loved all of it. Like I've walked on fire with Tony Robbins. I did Brian Tracy's goals exercise like thousands of times. I, I love all of it. But I, I started realizing that the, the spiritual path was kind of where all roads were leading to for me. Mm. And as I started surrendering into meditating, it's like, you know, starting to run distance running, you know, you run a few yards and want to barf, and then you maybe run a few more the next day. That's how meditation was for me. And the more I did it over time, it kind of gave me the marching orders for my career. You know, it said, you know, maybe you can teach this. Maybe, maybe other people need this too. And I started getting more and more like high stakes opportunities to teach lots and lots of people in a room where I just wanted to, you know, throw up and leave and go meditate by myself. And it kind of, you know, prepared me on larger stages to be a teacher. It's, it's, an, it's one of those moments I remember growing up as, because I grew up with my grandfather being a professor of theology, Church of Scotland minister. Wow, cool. And I was taken to, to church by my, my parents. And therefore, there was, a, there was a moment that I always remember going. So I was part of the church and there was a, the cross and the switchblade was a movie that was out at the time. Mm-hmm. And somebody said, and it was a story of a gang member who converted into Christian, being Christian and moved out of the gangs. But I, re- I remember I wasn't really taking my my faith that seriously because it had almost been forced on me all the way through. Right. But there was a moment where I was watching The Cross and the Switchblade and I was with two friends. They came with me to watch the movie. And it was an amazing movie, very powerful. But I was in tears. Now, that was going back to when I was 12, you know. But I, I still hadn't found the spirituality. And we're going back to that. I hadn't, still hadn't found my place. And I've been in an exploration to try find it, Buddhism, whatever else. And I, the one that fits the best for me is is the Buddhist re- religion. I, sure. I can take the Hindu side because there's so many gods that I get to pick and choose you know, <laughs> in some ways. You know, it's, it's good. But I, when you talk about spiritual side, just for the audience who are listening, and I think you call them the, the corporate go-getters or whatever you, you want to call it, what are we talking here? Yeah. So, um, I I think there's an important distinction from when we were kids, you know, you had me thinking back to my church experience as a kid. My, my parents never forced me in any way to go to church. And the only time I remember really going to church was I had a crush on a girl that went to this one church. And then when she realized that I was showing up, she stopped showing up. (laughs) So I was like sitting with her parents and I'm like, why am I here? Uh, anyway, um, I love that. Yeah. The spiritual part is, what I think people really gravitate towards with Buddhism, Hinduism, anything meditation-based, and, and I don't want to limit it to those traditions because no. uh, Catholicism, Christianity, they certainly all have a contemplative aspect. Mm-hmm. And when you tap into that contemplative aspect, you get to experience the direct experience of spirit versus this intellectualized having a person bark at you and probably shame you from the pulpit of how you should live. It just didn't, that, that never added up to me. Mm-hmm. But the, the time we spent in our own private temple and meditation and contemplation, we can feel a spaciousness. And from that spaciousness, we can maybe feel the intuitive voice, which I call permission to feel the feels. Mm-hmm. Uh, we could feel the confidence in ourselves strengthening into audacity to go do things that's tapping into the divine will. And so I started realizing as I was working in corporate circles that anytime, you know, these companies laud and, and, and kind of extol uh, purpose and mission and values and rare is the company that's really living those day in and day out. And I look at spirituality truly as 
how do we hook our little personal cart to a much larger horse, whatever that is. Maybe it's a universal force of benevolence. Maybe it's the belief that we can improve the world. That is a spiritual conversation to me. It's not only about God and angels and crosses. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no. And what I love is that the analogous situations that we bring ourselves to, those topical at the moment, but I'm looking at uh, Ukraine and I'm looking at a survivor, an old lady who survived Stalingrad and she's protesting in Russia about what's going on. But but there's a spirit about her and there's something she's gone through that's got her in a spirit of faith. And you can tell the police who are trying to arrest her have been really, really careful about because there's something about them. And, and what I loved, and we're going to go into the permissions that uh, you write about in your book, which are amazing for me. But the fourth one, if I jump to, to the end in mind, yeah, the fourth one about the permission to, to glow in the light is, for me, is, is suddenly by the nature of meditation and other pieces, my best ideas, my link to society, doing good for other people, suddenly released me from all this, excuse my language, but bullshit I had in my head before about what life was about. It was just about it's for others. Yeah. And I, I like that you start with permission for begin with the end in mind, because if there's something that I believe uh, are some benevolent spirit or God or goddess, whatever that thing is that organized this great drama we get to live in every day, if that force would want something for us, it would be to transcend all of our needy little look at me protection stuff and have what we do serve the universal good. And I think a lot of us trip over that in our work and we're really blessed to keep navigating towards that. Like how does, how does what I do support other people glowing in the light as well. And um, yeah, and it, it was the, by far the hardest permission to really articulate uh, because it's, it's, it feels so utopian in the world that we live in today. And we have glimpses of it. That I love that example of that woman because it would be much easier for somebody to just stay inside and cover their head and pray for it to be over. But she is defiantly saying, no, we can do better. And I've seen us do better. And this is what it looks like. And I think people are feeling that come off of her, which is just incredibly inspiring. I also just love the arts. So going back to the Rosh piece, I love the arts because a lot of us, a lot of the people listening to this will be saying, so So I get these moments, whether it's on top of a mountain somewhere where I'm looking at a beautiful view and suddenly nature is in front of me and I'm I'm hit by this this moment of thinking there's something more. Or it's, you know, I've got a good friend and I recommended that he went and saw Dear Evan Hansen because I went with my family. And for both of us, our kids and what they're going through at the moment, social media, all that, that inner turmoil about what it's like to be a teenager in the social media environment and all of those pieces was brought to life in this play and musical. And I was in floods of tears. My daughter next to me was in floods of tears and the rest of the family was impacted. But this is a banking friend who then went with his family and said, yes, more recommendations like this. So, for a lot of people, we get a small insight into these moments, but it's it's almost like a holiday rather than a, a true moment of being in that space all the time. Yeah. Uh, and all, all the more reason to make a concerted, vigilant, dedicated effort to creating those gaps, you know, because I, I struggle. I have three kids and I really struggle with them being you know, coming of age in the, you know, the thick of social media and all the addictive tendencies that that comparison engine creates. And on the other side of the coin, it is a connection to a universal consciousness when it's used for a force of good. And it does connect us. 
But yeah, that tension is real. And we're trying to just really instill in the kids just a bias for things like nature, a bias for things like real conversations face-to-face versus talking to people over text. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a challenging time to be alive. Yeah. So let's, let's go properly. And then we've squirreled around, as I would say, for, for the first part. But I'd love to go formally into it because I think that the four permissions for me are amazing in terms of giving people a framework. I'd like to, to, to get into them and what they are because I love the language. I've been listening to you in another podcast and I was listening to some of the language and, and you have this beautiful ability as an executive coach, you know, somebody who's worked in there, who's got a, a daughter who's in a band that you support and work with. You've had the band, you've lived your work you know, into to, to what you're trying to do. But these four permissions really crystallize into what we're asking people to go for. And I'm saying definitely go for it, but yeah, we've got to get them in that mode. Yeah. So if we, if we start at the top of it, it, it's really, and, and this is to me the most uh, self-compassionate place to start really is permission to chill, (laughs) you know, that you can actually in this high velocity world, you can defiantly sit down and say, time out. I need to remember what the hell I'm doing and who the hell I am. And I'm going to pause the crazy train. And, and in doing so, we stop like in creating a meditation habit is at the core of that. And by doing so, we, we strengthen our discernment muscle, which helps us remember that we can bring our focus back, that it's up to us, that we don't have to chase around our day or, or our clients' needs or our kids' needs by like we're getting dragged around by our hair. We can actually be intentional. We can slow think, we can slow down our experience of this world that we live in. And in doing so, it sets up the second permission. But I have been a meditator for years. I teach meditation and it is only getting more important that I practice what I preach on permission one, because life and careers speed up and they can get away from us and you can blink and 20 years goes by. And, uh, you know, if, if people, only pursue and master any one of these four permissions, they're going to be more than all right. But I always say start with permission one. And I'm with you because I had a recent experience where I was just overdoing it. And I was on a board meeting with the US. So I was in the UK. So it was on a late at night. And I just, I had that moment of just being aware, which is going on to permission two. But I was suddenly aware of not fear. I was feeling angry. I was feeling irritated with what was going on in this session. And I had to just stop myself. So I, you know, I didn't say much, almost retreated, but I was present, but I was retreating. And I had that moment of just breathing to realize that it wasn't them. It wasn't the topic. It wasn't anything else. It was just something in me. And the next day, having had a breakdown when I was 30, I suddenly realized that I was getting some of the signals that I'd had then now. And it was actually listening to another uh, podcast and written, somebody had been talking about how do you remove things from your life? Um, and permission to chill is another way of saying that, but it's that that moment of just going, I'm going to cut a couple of things out. And I just wrote, wrote an email to say, I can't be involved in this for the next month. I'll be back in contact. That's a, well, and thank God for that awareness. You know, I mean, that that permission to chill is about being with what is and, and being willing to see things as they are. You know, the virtue of sobriety, which is, does this serve me? Does this not serve me and it sounds like you had that moment and thank god you did you know you may you may have not had that awareness when you're a third yeah so what is the second permission get what that i was hinting at but you know uh, 
gosh, permission to is to me the final frontier in my personal work with my coach. It is the hardest. Uh, it can be the hardest one for men. Permission to feel all the feels. Permission to feel all the feels is, is once we've done the work to quiet our minds and chill, we can now interpret what our feelings are telling us or trying to inform. And feelings are these mental projections. They, they are the above ground emotional experience. So a feeling is of the mind through the men, lens of the mind versus the emotional root structure, which is through the body, through the feeling. So we confuse those things all the time and that can be tricky. But when we, when we can, what you did in that example is great. Oh, I'm not feeling in a way that serves me. What is this? Just asking that question, noticing it, naming it, and then you can navigate it. Mm -hmm. And what is my body telling me? It's telling me this thing doesn't serve me. And I believe our emotions are how our spirit or our soul communicates with us. And when we can clear all that static of the mind and just be with what the emotions are, we can, you know, then tap into our intuitive guidance, use feeling to manifest things, use, use, um, the emotions as, as fuel to get closer to what we want. But, but for, for starters, it's just really helpful to understand what we're feeling and why we are feeling that way. And and I like the comment about men struggle with this because I think there is a gender piece on here. Um, I mean, there's, there's struggles on both sides, but I think you made a comment that I was listening to about women just being closer to this than than men. Loved you to explore. Yeah. I, I've been married for 23 years or 24 years this year. Uh, two daughters and a son. And so I've always been really blessed to be surrounded by really powerful women who would just tell me very clearly what they see mm. <laughs> my opportunity is. So my, my coach is a powerful woman who kind of frightens <laughs> me. Um, and, and when I look around the world, truly, uh, also, uh, let me be clear, my book has a not-so-veiled, very feminist agenda, mm -hmm. because I believe there needs to be more women in leadership for this exact expressed purpose. Mm -hmm. Notice how women-led countries handled things like the pandemic versus the confusion and chaos and posturing and whatever of, of male-led. And it's not to pit male against female. And feminism is not anti-male. But if you go to mom with a challenge, for example, mom will figure that thing out. Dad might be like, oh, uh, go ask your mom. Uh, I don't, yeah. you know, wh what are we doing here? I mean, that's how I, that's typically my default parenting style, you know? Yeah. So I, I think women are incredibly powerful with seeing things as they are, noticing how they feel, maybe a little bit more access to that, and then showing the rest of us what it could look like, mm -hmm. you know? And I'm not saying all women are perfect. Like, no. I, I joke that men throw mantrums, tantrum, like man tantrums, <laughs> and women women do throw woe mantrums as well. Yeah. And women, in my experience with clients, with coaches, with my wife, are more likely to tune into that heart guidance mm -hmm. and, and tell you what to do, yeah. <laughs> which thank God for that. Oh, yeah. I love that because also I think there's a bit about vulnerability and, and shame and all the stuff that goes with that because I think there's a piece that, you know, I was brought up to just when things happen is just get on with them, you know, and I would start to to fight through it but and therefore i i do have a blocker in my life and that when i talk to people who are either i work closely with i will share that you know emotion comes very in a difficult way to me um i always use the expression that you know the only time i've ever really fundamentally seen my dad cry who just passed away last year was when the dog died wow. and that was but wow. but i think there's something in here about the more that you can show that emotion that vulnerability and people are willing to come in here. I think that's where 
there's there's a lot of it and i've worked with a lot of women in my time as um in terms of business partners who've always said you lead colin i'll follow now they were brilliant at doing that because their primary motivation was collaboration yeah right and therefore, yeah. for me, compassion, which you talk a lot about, collaboration, all of these words that are now coming into the leadership vocabulary are based on you've got to do the work. You've got to permission to chill, feel the feels, yeah. And then you've got to go into this third one, which is the permission yeah, to, to glow in the dark, which I, when I first heard, I thought, oh, I'm, I'm feeling a Rush album coming on here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally. And it's funny because uh, Permission 3 uh, is, is the reason why most people hire a coach. Yeah. It's to how do I fully self-express? But you pointed to something super important right there is that in that scenario, when you're when when the women, the powerful women around you are are giving you that platform and, and supporting that platform who is actually the leader in that scenario because i would argue that that from the back you know supportive leadership is so key for you to be able to go, go do what you do and, and the thing i want to underline in what you said is permission two is where our super humanity is found mm. we think it's in permission three which is when i glow in the dark and i fully self-express and i say sorry not sorry this is what you get then you will see my superhumanity. I'll look like a superhero. It's like, well, no, your superhumanity is found in the vulnerability and the willingness to share when it's really difficult. Yeah. So you experienced your father's superhumanity when the dog passes away. And it's yeah. it's a beautiful thing, you know. But uh, permission three is to self-express despite the ever-present fear. So you and I were talking before recording about we have keynotes coming up and that primal cortisol sweat lodge that we do to Run ourselves away. And, <laughs> swim away when, when we start realizing that we are going to be confronted with our own power yeah. where we have to stand and back up and be a mouthpiece for everything we've ever lived and articulated we could start making that overly significant we could start making that something to you know have foreboding or resistance to and but but what typically happens, and and this is something I noticed in childbirth with our three kids. You know, I was I was there with my wife as she's delivering these kids naturally. When that miracle has to happen, it it happens, mm. and you don't know how the hell or what it'll look like. But that is that glow in the dark moment mm. where we surrender into our own power. And it is such a beautiful thing. And when I was when I was writing the book at first, I thought because I come from Rush and being in bands and performing and all that stuff, I thought it was like the more of the like, here I am, world, hear me roar. And it's like, no. no. It my, my editor was like, where's the darkness, dude? What it, What is the relationship to the darkness? I'm like, oh, right. That's the thing I'm always not w willing to confront, like mm -hmm. most of us are. But in the willingness to do that, that's where the magic happens. And I was going to use a Rush lyric in that, in that chapter, which is from the song Marathon from uh, their 1986 album, Power Windows, which is from first to last, the peak is never passed. Mm -hmm. Something always fires a light that gets in your eyes. One moment's high and glory rolls on by like a streak of lightning that flashes and fades in the summer sky. Mm -hmm. And that is the moment of power our power is not a sustainable thing all on all the time, but it will show up and crack like lightning. And that's why we use the lightning bolt for that permission. And I love that because the system of that, that, that piece is important. But you're right. A lot of people use it. Well, I'm doing my work. You know? I'm good over here. <laughs> I'm doing it over here. But actually, the feel of fields um, and going into the final permission is an important bit. You know, and 
in a lot of ways, I, I certainly we've got a mutual friend in Michael Bungay Stanier that we've talked about before, mm. you know, and I've seen him on stage, yeah. and I'm like, <laughs> so impressive. He's just he's natural. I'm thinking, okay, so why would people want to pay to come and watch me do that? And and I realized, and he would do the same thing, which is, and he's got a. a, a a direction at the moment that he talks about in his new book, which he's, he's trying to be the leader who gives up power. And for me, as an, an analogy in my head, that really helped me, which is I'm trying to give forth, give to others, my learning, my experiences, my past, so that I am giving a gift, I'm paying it forward to other people. But to do that, I've got to do my hard work which is what is my insight, what's my observations of myself. So I'd, I'd love you to move into the fourth permission, which is permission to glow in the light, because this is my favorite, got to say. Yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah, so uh, what I love about watching leaders like Michael Bungay-Stanier and watching his journey you know, from the sidelines, it just it's so impressive because he's a fellow, fellow Enneagram 7, and he is a very powerful personality, but to watch him surrender all of that to the greater good of everyone else so it's not like look at me it's like look at you mm. you know like holding up the mirror for people and that's when we move into permission four is that when you when you've done this earlier work and you stay in this work it's not like you graduate from permission one and then you're done with that now and then two then three but if you're if you stay in that work then you have these transcendent moments of becoming part of a collective mm -hmm. of others who are doing this work. And then it becomes the look at you, look at us. We got this. Yeah. So, so I joke in the book that the 1980s personal development was all about like, I got this, you know, it was like very like aerobic dance competition type of energy, you know, like that, like, you know, pumping muscles and, you know, sweating and, you know, doing all this thing versus the, we got this, mm -hmm. the unlimited potential of, we got this because that is, messy and complicated and problematic for we, we treat our feelings as inconvenient and permission to and we treat people as inconvenient when we're not willing to give ourselves permission for mm -hmm. but when we treat people as they should be as absolute gifts as other divine expressions of their glowing in their own darkness then we could come together and solve some formidable problems that we're facing as a as a species and a, as humans. Because the, the, the piece that we're doing at the moment is around something called the 500, and we're looking at how we could give back to society. And, and we've done our hard work over the four months of trying to work out what it is and our version of, you know, uh, glow in the light piece. Mm. It's very difficult to get people to, want, to almost accept the fact that you're doing something for others when it makes money and profit. Yeah, and it, it's it's fascinating. So I probably spent three months trying to convince people that a a commercial business doing good for others to make it sustainable to have an infinite purpose is something that that is good. And I've almost given up now because I've not given up on the on the the project, but I've started to realize that as long as I involve other people and engage other people in the conversation towards something and go and I, you know, with Michael is one of those people who does that. Another one is Leanne Davies who is yeah, yeah she's, amazing she's just amazing she invites people in those canadians man oh, yeah. canadian <laughs> it is canadian. yeah rush canadians but I, I remember that we were having a linkedin conversation around the role of women in leadership and uh, and roles and it was fascinating because it was a conversation between women on this chat and it was leanne davy who said you know i think this is time that we should invite other men in here who have a you know a belief in the same thing and can get involved in the conversation so getting people into that spirit of it yeah 
to allow it to to collaborate and and talk to me about this the fourth one because it's obviously something that's come later in your thinking yeah yeah you know it's it's so beautiful and powerful and positive and and of spirit i would say Mm. that i would have conveniently easily left it out and say three permissions is plenty, man. Like we're good. You know, like this is a personal, personal development path. If I get you to glowing in your darkness, you're, you're doing all right. You know, and women around me, many of whom I deeply admire and respect were saying like, what if it's not enough to glow in the dark? What Mm -hmm. does glowing in the light look like? Mm -hmm. Again, you said something really interesting where sometimes we get trapped in this binary thinking when it comes to serving the greater good, where we say I could either be a for-profit business and, you know, a soulless money machine, you know, that chews up people and spits them out. Or I could be this vow of scarcity type of benevolent nonprofit, Mm -hmm. you know, but there are, there is a middle powerful ground emerging like the for purpose business. Uh, It's written in this great book, pencils of promise. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting to see, like we all know intuitively that as I get more resources, money being one of them, that I could serve more people and have more to give. Mm -hmm. So we have to reconcile that and not live in that binary. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's an important thing that's emerging in this permission for work is that we need the spiritual people to step forward and not, you know, stay in the monastery or be, you know, the, the, the vow of renunciation and say, I am here to, you know, reorganize around this and support as many people as I can. And, and that's something that my company absolutely grapples with. Yeah. You know, it, it's kind of a slower road to figure out how, how to do this work and maintain all of our ethics and try to walk our talk in terms of the permissions. Yeah. It's, it's challenging, but super rewarding. Now, for everybody who does, you know, the hero's journey, you've got dark versus light, and we've got the, you know, how to glow in the dark and how to glow in the light. But there's, there's these shadow characters that you talk about for each of the permissions as well, which being shadow, I would love a good shadow. So can we maybe just share the four shadows that you've got in there or some of the characters. Well, I would ask people to see if you could see yourself in any of these critters or any of these critters in yourself. Mm-hmm. The first is Speedy Rabbit, you know, moves too fast, judges everybody for not keeping up. Mm-hmm. Uh, loves to keep buying everybody coffee while they're sweating through, you know, the whole thing. <laughs> right. And it's, it, and it can be me as well. And it's, it's that unwillingness to slow down and see things as they are. And that's what permission to chill solves for yeah. works with speedy rabbit. The next is game face slap on the face. Like, how are you doing? Fine, <laughs> fine. You know, or I've like, I think of like a mother at the sink, like frantically washing dishes and she's so angry scrubbing the dishes and emptying the sink. And you ask her, how she's doing? I'm fine. <laughs> you know, it's like, well, are you? That, so that's permission to feel the feels yeah. solves for that. The phantom pest, which is somebody I coach a lot in different forms, is the micromanager and controller where when we're confronted by our own power, it's much more convenient to obsess over things that just don't matter. Like, I, I use PowerPoint fonts a lot because that's where I spend my time when I'm afraid to ask for the big honking, you know, fee for my keynote. I'll be like, well, are the PowerPoint fonts correct? And that's when I'm being the phantom pest. Yep. And then finally, Dark Star, which is the permission for character shadow side, which, you know, just engineering and creating this whole ecosystem or this successful business that, that actually protects you from receiving help and sharing yourself fully with others. And they, they seem to be aloof and distant and, and there's nothing wrong with any of these, by the way, they're parts of all of us, but we want to learn to work with them and notice when we're going to that place, because the more benevolent thing is to surrender into greater level 
levels of service. Like that, I love that example you brought up with Michael Stanier. That's been my experience of him. Mm. He's doing that work to say like, no, I don't got this. I want to make this about we got this. Mm, yeah. So I love that. And then before we were talking about it, before I came on, I was listening and you were giving the question that was asked at the time was how do we simply get into this? What would be a track? And you gave the four, seven, eight. Um, and I was joking that I was a bit nearly late for the podcast because I was so in four seven eight that I was drifting away into to my thinking. I'd love you to share that just as a technique because I found it useful and it's a bit like box breathing as well. It's it's in that same space, but it's a simpler one. Yeah. And the reason why four seven eight breathing works. So so what we're talking about is in through your nose for a count of four. So three four. Hold your breath for seven counts. One two three four, five, six, seven. Now deeply exhale through your mouth for eight counts, slowly. Six, seven, eight. The reason why that works is we are enforcing specific breathing patterns onto our involuntary nervous system. So we're, we are reminding our bodies that we are the ghost in the machine, (laughs) you know, really important. So it restores consciousness and, and also it has all these other biological benefits to it as well. But the main thing is you're giving yourself this long, generous exhale, which is some really important. It's like a really important forgotten part of breathing in a healthy fashion. So, so when people say, I need to slow down and take a breath, they usually take a big deep inhale and then they kind of do their fluttery little exhale and then move on. But four cycles of four, seven, eight breathing, it takes about 57 seconds. Mm. And if you don't have 57 seconds in your day, you're already screwed and you're probably beyond repair and you should just give up now, but you could find 57 seconds, you know? And when I remember to do those four cycles of four, seven, eight, when things are getting a little too frantic or I'm not really hearing what my body needs, skipping the meals, hiding from my power, phantom pest, all these things that show up, they're just little reminders like stop, drop and breathe, you know, four, four cycles, you know, uh, sanity can be restored, uh, options. We, we, we move from being down in the maze of life to being back up above it, seeing adjacent possibilities. And these are very stupidly simple things that when you remember to do them become incredibly powerful moves. And so, yeah, thanks for asking about 478 because it's it's really the easiest access point back into our power. And I was listening to a podcast once on breath and and for a lot of people going, breath, oh, well, I breathe, that's fine. And, you know, the old macho bit, which is, and, and it was interesting. I was a really lovely lady, Liliana, who gave me this podcast that she runs and they're called Wow at Work. And she was interviewing somebody who was an expert in breath. And I thought, oh, expert in breath. And and a bit like the 10-year-old version of me 10 years ago would have gone, really? Come on. And he had me when he said, and I do this for snipers. Yeah. And I'm like, oh my God, and sports people. But it it's this piece that's we're actually, we're harnessing something that's been around in the world for so long. Thousands of I mean, the, the yogis, the ancient rishis of India discovered this connection between the soul and the breath like thousands of years ago. And yoga is a science. So if you practice it scientifically, you will get predictable, documented, powerful results. You know, so when you talk about people in very high stakes work, like athletes, like snipers, Mm. what we're doing. And I talk about this in the permission three chapter around glowing in the dark is that, you know, Gay Hendricks in his excellent book, the big leap, he talks about your body doesn't know when it's nervous or excited, but if you breathe as if you're in control 
as you, so I use breathing to cycle up into those moments where I have to give a keynote because it's not the same mindset I want to have as I'm sitting down at a computer. So think about how you're breathing when you're just, you know, plugged into the matrix, doing your thing, you're kind of shallow breathing. But if you step up, fill your body with energy and breathe deeply, you, you start modulating up, preparing yourself mm. for just a more expansive mindset. And, and it, that's all breath work. And similarly, you can cycle down from that state back into a more relaxed cadence. And, yeah. but just these, you know, th- these moments to remember and practice is, is so key. And, you know, I, you know, I loved your comment when we were talking the last time, cause I'm a headspace addict and said, well, we'll get you to separate from your, your, your mobile device at some point. And I love that cause it's stuck in my head to think about that. But I think the, I always have two points where I get my best ideas. One is in meditation headspace. Mm-hmm. They, they come to me and they'll just crystallizing. Oh shit. Why didn't I think about that? And, and this mistake that people think the meditation is about trying to clear your mind and get, block out the thoughts yes thank you for that yes so i just wanted to just talk about that and then i'll go into the other bit yeah what i said to you and I, i say this to any meditation student or somebody who wants to deepen their practice is that guided meditation can be great meditation apps can be great because they're forming a structure that supports you doing your thing but it's at some point you want to move past it i always look at those as like dad holding the two-wheeler bike seat and wanting to let you go so you could leave the cul-de-sac because when you leave the cul-de-sac and you start meditating for deeper longer gaps on your own out in nature away from devices away from any other person's guidance you you can tap into something even deeper it's a more deeper personal experience of the meditative practice. So it's not that any of those things are wrong. I think they're great. Mm. And I would encourage people to go further. So with, with my own practice, I look at it as uh, the work of just surrendering into greater and greater gaps, more time being out on your own with yourself mm. versus relying on the guidance or the the hand on the bike seat. Yeah. It's so there, there's always more to savor there. And, and what I find in my own practice is the more, and my practice is incredibly structured because I follow the teachings of Paramahansa Yogananda, who I consider my guru. It's a very deep, rigorous path. But when I'm surrendering into the, the practice itself, things, I, I do experience like a deepening, a more expansive mm effect in, in the practice but and it's all hard let me let me under this yeah. it's not easy for anybody i don't feel like i'm getting uh anywhere near enlightenment quite yet and life keeps getting better the more that i meditate yeah and i think it's this bit that it is a lifelong journey a learning piece and the yoga is the final bit because you know i i looked out one day i was chatting to a lady who runs the local yoga studio and um kathy and she needed coaching on her business. So I said, well, I'll coach you in your business if you coach me in yoga. So amazing. And I always remember her analyzing me and going, what you need is Ashtanga because us A-type people just need Ashtanga. It's the one that's that's in there. But uh-huh. but there is something about when we talk about the, the mental side, the spiritual side, but there's also the physical side that yoga does. So I'd love you just to, yeah. to end on that. That would be great. Yeah. So in Western cultures and, and, uh, Britain is certainly a Western culture and United States, we, we typically think of yoga as the Hatha body yoga, flexibility, strength, um, great abs, great butts in yoga pants, you know, and it's, it's being further manipulated all the time on social media. And, and there is profound benefit to working through the body to get to the to the bliss at the end in Shavasana. Mm-hmm. However, in ancient yoga, when it was really articulated by Patanjali, then the nine branches of yoga, 
the body yoga was in preparation to the highest state of yoga, which just means union with spirit. Mm. Very simple, but a, a lifelong journey, many lifetimes possibly. But um, the body can prepare you to go to more exalted states in meditation. And so, so the, the, the postures, the asanas were used to prepare yourself to sit in lotus or whatever posture for hours on end, days on end, whatever you needed to get to that exalted state. So I, I, I come and go with my physical yoga practice. You know, mm-hmm. the pandemic definitely put a dent in that. However, in, in Yogananda's uh, meditation training, there are these postures and energization exercises. We do 38 of them that, that, that get the body prepared to sit in a deeper, more peaceful. And all of this, yoga, what, what's amazing about yoga and why I believe the four permissions are actually a, a form of yoga is that it's preparing us to align with spirit. Mm-hmm. And it's it's noble work, it's profound work, but there is a mind-body soul connection that we have to work with. We can't just say, oh, I'm just going to, you know, treat my bodily temple like crap and not worry if I'm, you know, stressed and fat or overweight or drinking too much, whatever. And I'm just going to connect with God. Mm. And that's possible. And it's even more probable when we work with the physical mechanism. So I, I think that there's incredible benefit and power to to practicing yoga and you know the first time we get in shavasana in a yoga class we typically just want to fall asleep and we look around and a lot of people are snoring and falling asleep but when we're awake in that kind of blissed out relaxed space that's when we really get the benefits of the practice and not to cheapen that but i do remember on the yoga pieces at the end where you had to like you got the chance to lie down put the blanket over you how often I fell asleep, which, you know, how often have I fallen asleep after exercise? No, but it's that state that you go through. And I, I do think the, the, the bit I'd love to leave it on is that what we're talking about here is practices, daily practices, getting to the mat, getting to the meditation that, that build a platform to allow yourself to fall out your own thinking. It's the perfect place to wrap on because I, I finished the book with the seven compassionate laws of personal change. Mm-hmm. And anybody I've worked with as a coaching client who takes significant ground in transforming their life, their business, whatever it is they're there to work on, they get this. It's it's in our willingness to practice mm. that some form of transformation is a foregone conclusion if you're just willing to practice. Mm. And, and it can't be this start-stop, like, oh, I'm going to work on the thing and hire the coach and work on it and then pick up something totally different six months from now. I mean, that's how Americans typically do things with their diet. But when you stay in the game of practice, that's where mastery can eventually unfold for you. And it's a very humbling, long, sometimes brutal path. But when we're willing to practice, we get those glimpses of what's possible. And so I I love just giving people the encouragement, just keep practicing. Yeah, I love it. Casey, Christopher, uh, fellow Rush fan, it's been a delight, a pleasure to have this conversation. And we need to have another one. We need to find an excuse to get in and just riff off some other conversations around this. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm going to propose a intercontinental two-man Rush retreat, uh, meditation retreat. That's good. I'm up for it. I'm there. I'm okay, there. Cool. I'll bring everyone else is invited as well, but uh, we'll we'll have our own offsite for a couple of days just to like take in some Russians and meditation. I think that sounds kind of awesome. <laughs> sounds my idea of heaven. Oh, thank you, sir. Pleasure to have you on the podcast. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Colin. So. 
to that was Casey Carter. What a what a conversation, amazing conversation. And I I love the fact that he's basing all of his work on something that's been there for thousands of years. And we're we're getting back to this principle that I'm discovering is the more I discover, the more that I realize that we've got some fundamental things in our life like breath um, that allow us to release our best thinking, to release our creativity to move into a state where we can do our own work, we can help others, and we can shape other people's lives through it. Um, so I love that. Uh, I also just love that he is such a generous, giving spirit that uh, allows others to benefit from this. So, yeah, you'll have noticed I enjoyed that conversation, and uh, hopefully it's uh, really resonated to you, and you can pick out two or three things uh, to work on. We'll put in the show notes where you can get in contact with, with Casey and uh, his work, and understand that but yeah give yourself a break and go out and get permission to glow and read the book and uh, enjoy as much as i've enjoyed his company 